Worship team, that was awesome, but I've just got one problem. My throat is like burning now because of all the singing, so I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm, we're going to make it though. We're going to make it. Oh, that was so good. Um, if you've been around the Bible much at all, you know that one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture is a story that Jesus told. It's a parable, which is a, a sort of story that is told that has a meaning at the end of it. It's the parable often known as the parable of the prodigal son. Have you guys heard the story, the parable of the prodigal son before? Yes, I'm seeing some nods. It might better be called the parable of the father and two sons, because in case you've forgotten, here's the general thrust of the story. There was a man, he had two sons, and basically one was the good son and one was the bad son. And the bad son went to his father and said, dad, you're dead to me. Give me the money that's mine, something that every father would hope they never hear from a son. But incredibly, this father gives his son half of all his possessions, basically his son's inheritance before the father has passed away. And what does the son do? He wastes it all in wild and reckless living. So pretty quickly, this story has some of the highest highs and lowest lows of emotional living, right? There's a father with sons and a family that seems joyful, but that one son goes and throws it all away. The son seems to be enjoying the life he's living until all the money's gone and he finds himself literally eating pig slop. Something so gross, I really am not even going to try to describe how gross it is because that might not be good for an Easter Sunday sermon. But the son, he comes back to his senses. And he says, you know what, I'm going to go back to my dad. But the son realizes, I I couldn't even ask to become a son again. Instead, here's what the son asks. He goes back and he says, dad, can I simply be accepted back as one of your hired Servants, I know I've lost my right to be a son. I know I've broken your faith. I know I've broken your heart. I know I've thrown it all away. So I'm not even going to ask if I can be your son again. I'm just going to ask, could I be your hired servant? And the father looks at him, right? And you guys might know the end of the story. The father looks at him and reaches out his hand and pulls him up off his knees. The father takes his own robe off, his symbol of fatherhood, and he puts it onto his son. He takes the ring off his finger and he puts it onto his son's hand and he calls the most lavish celebration you could possibly imagine. And then there's this line that the father says at the end of the story. Because the other son comes back and he's like, "Well, dad, you know, I don't, I've been here the whole time. How come I don't get a party? What's going on? How come this son has ruined you? You know, wasted your property. What's going on? And the father says, whoa, whoa, whoa. My son was dead. I thought he was dead. I thought I'd lost him. But now, come to find out, he has come back alive. I think the reason the story of the prodigal son is so endlessly compelling, it's told over and over and so many times in places, is because it has as its center two of, maybe the two greatest themes of human history, of, of human existence. What I mean by great is most significant and weighty, the themes of death and life. Themes that we see literally in every genre of literature throughout history. We see it in film, we see it in storytelling, we see it even 
in our own lives. We know that the, the ideas, the themes, the experiences, whenever we come face to face with the greatness of life and with the pain of death we're dealing with, matters of great importance. And sure enough, the scripture that I want us to look at today, that I want us to spend a little time thinking about for our own lives, talk about these exact same themes. And, and the reason is not only because these are important themes, because, but because these are the themes that God has said to us are the most important things for us to think about. What does it mean to live in a world filled with death? And in that world, what does it mean and, and how does it come about that we might actually not succumb to death, but instead be fully alive? I want to read Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 again. It says, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in the city of Ephesus, and Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And those are the three big ideas that I want us to talk about this morning. Alive, dead, and saved. And I'm going to make the argument that these big ideas, which in fact are actually just three different parts of one central idea, I'm going to argue that these three big ideas are actually the most important things you or I or any human being could ever think about. And so, especially for people who might be new to this church or new to church in general, I just kind of want to take one minute and tell you kind of how this is going to go. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read scripture. We already read scripture. And by scripture, what I mean is this collection of history and poetry and letters and wisdom, this collection of writings written across thousands of years that have been bound together into a book that we now call the Bible. And after we read from the Bible, both this verse and later we're going to read a story from one of the Gospels, which is just sort of a theological history telling the story about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. After we read from Scriptures, we're going to talk about the Scriptures. And here's why we talk about Scripture here every Sunday morning, both as information but also as a reminder for those of you who are here every Sunday morning. We read from Scripture for many reasons, but here's what I think is one of the most important Everybody in their life, everyone lives their life based on something, right? We all go about and make our choices. We set our courses of action. We uh, uh, make critical decisions. We all do that based on, with some sort of a foundation, right? The basis of something is the foundation upon which you make it. We all live our lives based on something. We've all got some inner cohesion that brings order or reason or sense to how we choose and move and go about our lives. Some of us have an explicit basis. Some of us know on what basis we make decisions. Others, we don't really know it. It's just sort of this vague internal thing. But if we know that all of us live our lives based on something, then the really important question becomes, on what are you going to base your life? Are you going to go on just sort of hoping that whatever the basis is is a good one, or are you going to let yourself become aware of this reality and make a choice and say, I will choose to base my life on something trustworthy? Like Jesus said, there was the man who built his house on some sand, but when the storms of life came, the, the house 
washed away. And there's another man who built his house on a rock. And when you build your house on a rock, the storms don't wash it away. (laughs) But then there's a second thing that we're going to do. See, after we talk about Scripture, which we believe is the best possible thing to base our lives on, it's the best possible thing because, one, millions of people over thousands of years have said, when I base my life on these words, it is good and true and reliable. And so we have evidence that when this is the basis of life, it is a trustworthy basis. But two, and more significantly, and this, let's be honest, this sounds weird to some people. These words aren't just letters and history and poetry. These words are actually, somehow, mysteriously, words from God to us. And if God actually created us, then there is no better basis for our life than his words to us. And at the end of the sermon, after we read the words and talk about them, there's going to be a really critical question. The question that we're going to ask at the end is, what am I going to do with all of this? Because the fact of the matter is, knowing what is said in here, you can read it, you can memorize it, you can understand it, knowing what is said in here is actually not the point. The point is knowing what is said in here so that we can apply it to our lives. Because if we take the truth that's good and life-giving and freeing and helpful and strengthening and we don't do anything with it, then it's not actually going to have the significance it's made for. So just as a warning, at the end of this sermon, um, we're going to put these words up on the screen. It's going to say, your move. And when it says your move, I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do with the words of Scripture that we've read today? Okay, enough intro. Let's get into our three big ideas. Big idea number one, alive. I love the word alive. See, if you think about it, the word alive gets used in a broad scope of circumstances, right? When we're doing something and we just sort of lose track of time because we love doing it so much, we say, oh, doing this just makes me come alive, right? When we're in the middle of the most joyful things in life, we use the word alive alive to describe the best things of life. Take a minute and just think across your own life. Think about the way you spend your time, the endeavors you're in the midst of, whether that's at home, in relationships, at work. What are the things in your life that make you come alive? It could be anything. We had the videos at the beginning of the service, right? People sharing about all sorts of things they do that I think if you walked up to them, they say, man, when I'm doing this, it just makes me come alive. It brings to mind this word alive. It brings to mind all sorts of emotions and experiences like joy, beauty, sometimes vulnerability, connection, discovery. These are the things that when we see them and brush up against them, when we're doing them, when we experience them, we say, man, it is good to be alive. This word alive, it's used as a metaphor for anything and everything good we experience throughout our days. But that metaphor, right, that thing, that word that we use to talk about all that is good and right and beautiful in the world, when relationships are strengthened, when when my heart is filled, that metaphor actually points to something even bigger and deeper going on. See, because the word alive has two sides of its meaning. It means physically alive, like, yep, there we go, right? I'm, I am alive. 
but it also means that being physically alive is not the fullness of life. There's another quality. There's a further character. There's a bigger reality than simply having a heartbeat to being alive. And that bigger reality is that when God made us, he made us physically alive, but he also made us, you were made to be spiritually alive as well. And spiritual, it can sometimes feel like a scary word, but it really just means everything more than physical. Because I think you would agree. I mean, I don't know. Would you agree with me? Our physical lives don't capture everything that we experience. There's a bigger reality out there. So it's good to be alive. And anything we experience that makes us go, it's good to be alive. Oh, we just love that. But here's the problem. And I don't want to put problems on you, but I think you might agree with me that there's a problem that we've already experienced. See, it's good to be alive and we love doing things that are alive, but we have to now reckon with the second big idea of the day, namely the word dead. See, it's good to be alive, but we live in a world filled with death. And just like the word life, death has a couple different meanings. We talk about it to mean physical death. Something which certainly brings its own serious heartache and grief with it. But we also use the word death to refer to all those things that are hurtful and harmful to ourselves and to others. Right? You get done with just a, maybe a brutal day at work where people, you know, work wasn't going well and maybe people were being critical of you and, and you get home and you say to your loved one, oh, I just feel dead. Or you're in the middle of something hard, maybe a, a difficult relational circumstance and you, and you say, to, oh, this is killing me. We love to live life that makes us say it's good to be alive, but the problem is we're doing that in a world filled far too often with far too much death. Let me ask you a question. I hope this isn't too personal of a question, but I know that it's something real for many of us. Where are you experiencing death in your life? Right now, right now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote that letter to the Ephesians, said that we are dead in our transgressions. Paul believed that every single person who would ever read that letter, but he was actually talking about every single person who had ever walked the earth, every single person has to come face to face with the fact that we experience death, pain, suffering, brokenness, all that's wrong. We experience death in our lives. All of us do. And Paul starts pointing towards the reason we all do. Paul says we are dead in our transgressions. Transgressions is just a really big word that means the same thing as another much smaller word that you've probably heard of, sin. See, the Bible talks a lot about this theme of life and death. Sin is the Bible's word for all of the causes, all the actions, all the consequences, for all the choices that both bring about and reveal the power of death in our world because death, I hate to say it, is powerful. Paul, again, in another letter he wrote, says it this way, for the wages of sin is death. If sin is a power that's out there in the world, at work, we see evidence of the power of sin in the reality of death. I'll ask it again, whether it be the physical death 
and the pain you experience when you lose loved ones or the spiritual death of when things don't go right and it just feels like you're dying inside. Where are you experiencing death? Where are you dead in your life right now? Now, I've got a question uh, that I want you to think about as we've considered what it means to be, to be fully alive and we've considered the the, the hard reality that death is at work in this world. I've got a question, and it might feel like it's a silly question because its answer is probably obvious, so just bear with me for a second, all right? So, so we've got it in our heads. We're like, okay, over here, all these things, oh, it's good to be alive. Oh, I just love, this is just good. This is the way life is supposed to be. Over here, oh, oh it hurts. This is death. Oh, this is not the way life is supposed to be. If you could choose between spending more time doing the things that make you come alive or more time doing the things that make you feel dead, which would you choose? Just think about it. I mean, don't rush to a conclusion. Just think about that for a second. Oh, man, Carl, you've laid out such compelling options on both sides of this question. It's obvious, right? If we could choose, we would only and always do the things that make us feel alive that make those we love feel alive, that strengthen relationships, that increase connections, that bring more beauty and goodness to the world. If we could choose, we choose it every time. Which means I have to ask one more question, and I'm really sorry I have to ask this question. Why don't you? I mean, I'm just going to make an assumption. I'm going to assume that at some point in your life, you've been looking at a decision And you've thought to yourself, maybe subconsciously, maybe consciously, you know what? This would be the decision that would bring life. And this would be the decision that brings death. And you thought, I should really choose the one that brings life. And then you know what you did? You know what you did? You know what I did? Hasn't actually been that long since I've made a decision somewhere along these lines. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to choose this one. It's going to hurt me. It's going to hurt somebody else. It's not going to bring anything good or right or beautiful into the world. And even though I know that, I choose it anyway. Can we just, is, there, is anybody willing to raise their hand and be like, yep, done that before? Is any, okay. Why? Why do we do this, people? Turns out, our friend Paul, who wrote the first words of scripture that we wrote, who wrote many of the letters that we now call the New Testament, he actually had the exact same experience that you and I have had. Isn't that crazy? He lived 2,000 years ago, and he's had the exact same experience, and he has a way with words. Here's how Paul described it. He said, I have the desire to do what is good. Oh, look at that. I have the desire to do that. But I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. (sighs) Which brings us back to the same frustrating question that my kids say to me all the time. Why? Why is it that I often cannot do what I want to do, and the thing I do not want to do, even though I do not want to do it, I do it anyway? Again, Paul gives us an answer. Turns out it's the same answer that Jesus gave that we're going to hear about again in just a minute. Paul says, Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin 
living in me that does it. See, if you've ever looked around in your life and said, oh, I know what it is to be alive and I know the good and beautiful and right things that make me come alive and I love it, but then you've struggled with a sad fact that in spite of that, you still make choices and set directions and make decisions in your life that bring about hurtful or harmful things to yourself and others, then I think like Paul, you have to acknowledge there's something inside of me that is at work. It's not passive. It's not just sitting there. It's actually at work, like a disease forcefully harming my body. There is something inside of me compelling me, causing me. It's a sickness that I just can't heal myself from, which brings us to the third and final big idea of the morning. See, if we've got a sickness, and Bible calls sin a sickness, a disease, a brokenness that we can't heal ourselves from, if we've got a sickness and we can't cure ourselves, we don't have the medicine in our hands, that means we need someone to save us. We need to be saved from the sin that is inside of us, causing us to do the things we don't want to do. I mean, either that or... We just need to admit that when we do things we do not want to do, when we hurt ourselves and hurt others, if if we're not going to seek to find a cure to that sickness, then we have to admit maybe we're just okay with the sickness. I mean, I, I don't know the other options. If we want to move from death to life, we need someone To save us. I'm not talking just about like making the right decision at one time and in one place. I'm talking about the freedom that we just sang about. This idea that what if I could actually be fully free from this prison I experienced, this entrapment to sin? But, Carl, hold on a second. Okay, that's a nice idea. Like, that sounds good, right? But if I can't save myself from that sickness, and my husband or my wife can't, and my mom or my dad can't, and my friends and my family and my kids can't, can anyone really do that? I mean, is is that even a real thing? Because I don't know. It sounds fanciful to me. It sounds a bit like nonsense. Can anyone really free me from the power of death? Does anyone actually have the power to bring me from death to life. And then let's get real. Can we be real a second? I mean, come on. Let's just... Some of us, this whole metaphor, like let's stop being metaphorical, this whole metaphor of like death in our lives, let's be real. If some of us think about what that actually is, the circumstances that we're facing right now, the pain that we're feeling right now, the, the complexity of life that you just look at and you're like, okay, maybe hypothetically somebody could overcome that, but there's no way anyone could overcome what I'm facing. Has anybody ever had that thought? Like, sure, maybe God can help some people at some times in some places. Maybe there's hope for those people or those people, but if anybody knew what I was actually facing, they'd acknowledge there's no way anybody could help me. If somebody was going to be able to save us from death and bring us to life, they would have to have a power. They would have to have something more powerful than death 
itself. I want to tell you a story. It's a story that was written down by an eyewitness, a man named Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' best friends, spent years with him, every day with him, probably for close to three years. And Peter thought Jesus was the one that could free him from death and give him life. And Peter saw some things with his own eyes and had dozens, maybe even hundreds of friends who saw the same thing with their own eyes. And so Peter chose to write it down, but it turns out Peter wasn't a great writer, so he actually didn't write it. He had a friend of his, a guy named John Mark, write it, because John Mark was a better writer than Peter. Or maybe Peter was just so excited he, he couldn't keep his pen straight. So Peter's friend John Mark wrote down the words of Peter because Peter was there in person. Hundreds of other eyewitnesses saw what Peter wrote. We can read about it in one of the books in the Bible. The book is called The Gospel of Mark. I guess John didn't like his first name, so he went by the second name Mark. He didn't go by John, he went by Mark. Or maybe because John was one of the other books, and that would have been confusing if we had two different books called John. So here's what Peter wrote. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Just a couple things on that first verse. One of the things I love about Peter's writing is he includes some really wonderful details. See, Jesus died, you might recall, on a Friday. And back in the day, Saturday was the Sabbath day. Saturday was the day for church and worship and not doing any work and resting. Saturday was always, 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 for thousands of years, Saturday was the day you go to church or temple or synagogue, whatever they called it back in the day, right? That you didn't work, that you didn't do anything. And so what happened was Jesus was put to death. He was crucified on a Friday. But because it would not be okay to take his body and bury it on a Saturday, on the Sabbath, they got his body down late Friday night. And they just barely had time before the Sabbath began to take Jesus' body down and put it into a tomb. But do you know what happens when you put a body into a tomb? It gets really stinky. That's what happens. So you've got to get some spices. You've got to embalm it. You've got to cover up the stench and make it less Horrible. But the problem was they just got the body down on Friday. They put it into the tomb on Friday night. Sabbath starts on sun, at sundown on Friday evening, so they barely, like buzzer beater, right? They barely made it in. But they didn't have the, they didn't have the spices. And so Peter lets us know that Jesus is dead and he's put in the tomb on Friday, but then it's Saturday and they're not allowed to do anything on Saturday. So early Sunday morning when the Sabbath was over... Right away, first thing, they get up in the morning and they go and they buy spices. Do you know why they bought spices? Because they thought Jesus was still dead. And do you know why they thought Jesus was still dead? Because as far as all of the disciples were concerned, dead people stay dead. It's a crazy thing. Turns out most people actually think dead people stay dead. And so they got up on Sunday morning and they bought some spices because they wanted to go and visit their dead friend. Their hearts were crushed. I mean, this was awful. 
But the story continues. Very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? It's a big stone. We're not going to be able to move it. Who's going to do it? Again, they thought Jesus was dead. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Pause here again. Why do you think they were alarmed? I'll tell you some reasons. They thought somebody had stolen the body. They saw somebody else in a tomb. They expected to see Jesus in the tomb, probably on the left side, but instead they saw some other guy in the tomb on the right side. This is not what they were expecting to see. But this guy in the tomb understands that they're alarmed, and he says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter. Peter, you really got to put your name in the story like that. You just wanted to slide it in there extra. Tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And what we get in all the other gospel stories is these wonderful, hilarious, somewhat sad, but somewhat, for me, hopeful stories about disciples who heard this good news, right? Who then had these moments where they looked Jesus in the eye. They'd seen his dead body three days ago, and now they looked him in the eye. And the gospels use words like terrified or confused. They use words like doubtful or hiding in fear to describe what the disciples have done. Has anybody ever heard good news before? Maybe you've even heard the good news we're talking about right now, this idea that Jesus is alive, and you found yourself responding like the disciples, hiding in fear, confused, terrified, bewildered, running away from the very thing that could save you. And the disciples began to experience Their eyes began to get opened to a reality that Jesus told them was coming, but it's news that was so good they had to be told many, many times before it finally sank in. And here's the good news. Because Jesus, who was dead, has come back alive, in whatever way you and me and Jesus' disciples back then and every person who has ever lived, because Jesus has come back alive, any place that any of us is experiencing death in any way, there is a power that is greater than that death. And the reason Jesus came back alive is so that he could save us from the power of death in our world. This was told about from the very beginning. An angel spoke to Jesus' father, Joseph, and he was speaking to Joseph about Mary. The angel said to Joseph, she, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians said, you have been saved by grace. The Apostle Paul talked about this all the time. He said again in a letter he wrote to a church in Rome, he said, thanks be to God who delivers me 
through Christ Jesus our Lord. Delivers is just another word that means saved. Jesus didn't die and come back to life so that we would celebrate his life. Jesus died and came back to life so that he could give you new life. If you want to, if you want to like to say an amen or something, you could, you could do that right now. That would be an okay thing. Which brings us, as I warned you, to your move. Because Jesus did explain that there is one simple caveat. The gift is free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to pay for it. Jesus paid for it. Jesus wrapped it, and he put it on the table right in front of it. There's only one thing you have to do. You have to receive it. So let me ask you, in your life right now, is there anywhere that you would say, I feel imprisoned, I feel trapped, I feel caught, I feel stuck? I feel like there's just no way I could get out of this prison of death that I'm stuck in. If that's you, I want to invite you to consider your move right now. Uh, Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have Kaylee come up and light some candles. See, like Stina just talked about, often we keep things in our heads. And I want to give us a chance to, to put into action with our bodies the choice that God has put before us today. Because the choice is simple. We can choose life or we can choose death. We can choose to receive the gift God has given us free of charge or we can choose to stay stuck in the prisons we're stuck in. Jesus made it clear that this choice, if we receive this gift from him, it is good once and for all, free of charge, both now but indestructibly for all eternity. And yet, the way we experience that is in a world that will continue to experience the power of death day to day. So it's a choice you only need to make once. And it's good forever. But it's also a choice you need to remind yourself of and refresh in your heart each time we're tempted to turn back to the ways of death. And so here's the simple invitation. Jesus said, here's how you receive this gift. The first thing you have to do is something that often we don't like doing. You have to confess. Confess that you're stuck and you can't free yourself. Confession means we acknowledge that sin, the problem of death and brokenness, it's not just a problem out there. Oh, look at those people. Oh, look at that situation. Sin is something in here. It's something I do. And once we confess, God, I can't do this on my own. We say, and I'm going to look to one and only one place. I'm going to look to Jesus to save me from this prison I'm stuck in. In a sense, it's like all of us are carrying around a burden. We're carrying around some sort of a heavy load. And we'd love to put the load down because our backs are sore and our shoulders are aching. This burden of the weight of sin and death is a load we cannot bear, but we just... We just can't put it down. We just, for some reason, can't set it down. Unless we set it down at the foot of the cross where Jesus said he will take it from us and exchange it for life. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. 
And he will forgive you your sins and cleanse you, clean you, wash you right out from all brokenness and sickness and unrighteousness inside of you. Here's the invitation I'd like to make. The worship team is going to come back up. Would you take whatever burden you're carrying? Maybe you brought a physical rock from Good Friday. Maybe you've got the image of a rock. If you've got the paper and you want, you don't have to. Maybe you just want to write down. I'll keep it completely confidential. I'll personally pick them all up at the end of the service. Maybe you want to write down what's the place you're experiencing death in your life right now. Where is sin keeping you imprisoned? But whatever it is, will you take the burden of sin you carry? And I'd invite you to bring it forward during this last song and just set it down at the foot of the cross. Anywhere on the steps across the front of the stage is setting your burdens down at the foot of the cross. And then hear this truth and this invitation if you set your burden down, confessing your sins and looking to Christ and saying, Christ, will you forgive me? If you do that, then you will come alive. And after you've done that, I'd invite you to recognize that moment by simply taking a little candle and lighting it as a way to recognize, God, I have received from you this day the gift of light and life. Would you pray with me? God, I ask that all of us might be honest in our hearts right now with whatever way it is we're struggling with sin and death. Whether it be for the first time or the hundredth time in our life, God, we come to you with a posture of confession. God, if there's anybody who's hearing these words or hearing this good news for the first time, I pray that they would not only receive the gift of life you give them, but that after the service they'd talk to somebody, talk to the friend who brought them, talk to me or anybody up on this platform, that they would acknowledge what's happening in their heart right now. And God, as we lay down our burdens before you, we pray that you would give us, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because we know, God, you want to give it to us. We pray that you would give us the gift of life of light that you have bought for us in your death and proven the power of in your resurrection. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.